Welcome to Ex Libris On Air and the stories behind the stories of today's literature and their authors. A presentation of Ex Libris Publishing, host Steve Jorgensen connects with a writer to share the vision and inspiration behind their works. Insightful, informative, and always entertaining, please welcome host Steve Jorgensen and this week's edition of Ex Libris On Air. The title of the book, Paging Dr. Kevorkian, and the author is Jamie Allen Toomey, and Jamie joins us now on Ex Libris On Air. Hello, Jamie. Hello, how are you? Great, great to have you with us. These are psychological thrillers, uh, kind of the type of book you just can't put down, a lot of twists and turns, and of course, uh, we'll learn more about why you decided to write in this style in a moment. Well, let me read what you've written about your book real briefly. You say, Paging Dr. Kevorkian is a collection of three raw, groundbreaking novels. It uh, starts with a chilling explosion of violence paralyzing the reader before taking aim and tickling your funny bone. So uh, that should be interesting to find out how you, you wrapped all of that into uh, one of your stories. Uh, but first of all, Tell us about yourself, Jamie. How did this all come about? What's your background, and why write this way? Well, uh, originally from Massachusetts and in New England, uh, Stephen King's a big name out there, and I was always a fan of his, and I ended up moving to Maine. Uh, and that's where I decided to, uh, you know, uh, buckle down and get a career going for myself, I would say. And I always had an interview, uh, in, uh, interest in horror novels, so I... Uh, so I thought I could see what I could do with it. I taught myself. Uh, I, ne I never written anything more than a college-level book report before. And um, I just sat down and uh, just started to work. I was divinely inspired to uh, get going, I guess. <laughs> well, everybody has to get going if you're going to make it happen. And congratulations for publishing your book. A lot of people talk about it. Few do it. So let's just kind of look at, uh, let's see. The first one, uh, your what is the first one titled in this? Uh, there's a feature of uh, you have three novels. What the first one is titled? Uh, Breaking Heads. That's the raw explosion of violence. It's, uh, it's about a guy who um, leaves his girlfriend is cheating on him, and on Thanksgiving he takes her family hostage, and he uh, he murders them all, uh, and. Uh, it's probably, I remember I, I was writing uh, a few um, novels that actually had more of a, um, a comedy aspect to it, and uh, I wanted that one to be a raw novel that I put together. So again, the title of it is called? Uh, Breaking Head. Breaking Head. So as you write, it's a paranoid ex-con at his breaking point. So do we learn about this character? Uh, what's his name? His name is Buster Adams. Uh, that was the first novel I wrote. It's just basically a short story. The second novel is a featured novel. It's probably like Misery, where there's this, uh, there's this guy who uh, has uh, a beautiful supermodel girlfriend, and then she has an accident, and she's in a wheelchair, and um, he meets this other girl who tries to take him away from her and forces him to page, page Dr. Kevorkian and ends up strangling her again. Well, that's uh, a kind of a morbid thing, but I think most people could uh, identify with 
uh, the conflict, I guess, if you're, you know, you have this one girlfriend who's absolutely gorgeous, and after an accident, then you're kind of, again, this psychological thriller. That's, that's the, you know, the, the real meat of all that you write about. Yeah, uh, the third novel is actually um, called Ridden and Stupid. It's actually a comedy that I wrote for an actress, uh, thinking about it. And uh, uh, an actress uh, actually dedicated it to her. No, I actually had a problem in Maine where I was, um, where I was actually like, and this is a true story. I was I was terrorized by my neighbors up there. There was um, my neighbors named the Schobergs, which were the Smiths. I believe they started the Thirteen Colonies. Um, they were a strict Baptist community, and they into the with the um, uh, with the uh, police department and the border patrol. And I don't know what happened, but uh, I'd actually like to talk about uh, one of my novels called Curses, too. Um, it's a fictional novel about uh, a normal American family who sees a UFO and a man in black written in as a clown falls at home, kind of like uh, it. Uh, and uh, the clown terrorizes them from outside the home, making them go crazy in a possession-type scenario. But the last section is a non-fictional account of... Uh, Terrorism I endured in Maine, written about. Uh, um, and what happened was I was actually forced across the country to Ventura and then to Long Park and uh, harassed by agents of the government. Uh, I think it could have started with me writing horror novels using uh, words like kill or murder too many times. Having the Border Patrol as a close neighbor, I saw a documentary about it and how uh, the government jumped onto people's computers, monitoring their files for terrorist communication. Uh, there are other explanations, but that's the one I'm going with uh, right now. Uh, this non-fictional account in Curses 2 describes an instance when I was um, staying at a hotel in late December of 2011 when I turned on the Jay Leno show, and Charles Barkley was uh, was on, and he mysteriously turned to the camera, said the word pirates, which is actually uh, the actress that I uh, wrote, written in Stupid, uh, or it's actually uh, one of her movies, Pirates. And uh, I also uh, dedicated my book, The Tagalong, to in kind of a joke scenario. Uh, and uh, I think uh, Charles Barkley said that because they were trying to let me know what they were doing, and that was following me around with some kind of government satellite. Um, there was also an incident on the Conan O'Brien show where he actually said my name, Hmm. Uh, the exact date was uh, uh, February 26, 2013. It could have been the day before or the day after. Uh, but I was watching, and uh, he knew that I was watching. And he said a few things that I would that I would know he was talking about me. Then he mouthed my name, Jamie. Uh, I actually have evidence of this where I've been contacted over the internet and given proof of these two uh, these two events. There's websites that I looked up. Um, one was actually images of Pirate H.J. Leno. I spelled pirates wrong, uh, but the website had pictures of Jane Leno and the actress Jesse Jane to tell me that that's what it was about. Uh, I have evidence of many websites like this, like Sydney's construction site, which offered my uh, my novel to tag along, which is my second novel. And Cindy is actually Jesse Jane's first name. Also, uh, when I went to Las Vegas for a pitch fest on February 7th, 8th, and 9th of 2013, there was a Hooters billboard across the street from MGM Grand Hotel where I stayed. And it had a girl on it that I knew from Medford, Massachusetts, named Laura D'Astasio. 
Uh, she's actually a Hooters girl now. Uh, they put her up on the billboard because I was going to Pitch Fest in Las Vegas. Why I haven't made any money up until now, I just don't know. Uh, but like I said, the Jay Leno incident happened in late December of 2011. As soon as I turned it on, Charles Barkley turned to the screen and said, Pirates, which is a Jesse Jane movie. Then Charles Barkley talked about the president and how he thought they were going to lose the election. And then Jay Leno brought in an image of Dwight Howard impersonating Charles Barkley. Uh, so if you actually want to look that up and check it, check it out, it would help me out a lot. But I've been contacted over the Internet, and I believe many people have read my novel. And a lot of people know who I am. So what I did was I published a novel about it, and I actually put proof of these incidents in the novel. It's called Curses 2. I outlined all the things that happened to me across the country. Celebrities talked to me uh, uh, making contact with me and uh, and put proof of it in uh, in uh, in my novel, like uh, like pages from the website, which I included in Curses Two, uh, Witchcraft, the book I wrote before Curses Two. Uh, I chronologue the Jay Leno incident. I actually make a made a joke about it, like I got Charles Box to ask Jesse Dane on a date for me. It was kind of funny, but I uh, chronologue in my book Witchcraft. Um, the main character in this book was named Jesse Dooms. Uh, and I looked up on uh, the big search engine images of Jesse Dunes uh, because they, put, they were putting questions of websites on the internet uh, for me to look up, kind of like an internet terrorism scenario. And there were codes involved in everything. And uh, I found a picture of Jesse Jane and images of Jesse Dunes, and I included that in my book, Curses, too. Uh, since then, I've collected uh, definite proof of the Jay Leno incident, the Conan O'Brien incident, and um, I'm just... Uh, trying to, I actually contacted a few uh, reporters and everything about it to try to get them to look into it, but nobody's looked into it yet. So I figured I'd include it in this interview so I can at least put the message out somewhat. Right, right, Will. Well, you have some strong feelings about the American dream and also the free, freedom of speech. I know that. Yeah, I do. I, uh, I believe you can uh, write whatever you want to write as long as it's fiction. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, where do you think all this is going? Uh, I don't know. Uh, we'll see what happens. I just got a literary agent. Uh, you know, if I can work, uh, work through her to maybe get a deal. Um, I don't know. That's a good question. Where do you think this is all going? Well, if indeed all that you say is true, obviously you're on somebody's list somewhere. <laughs> Right. You know what's funny? Yeah, you know you know it's true. A lot of people know it's true. It's just people are afraid to talk about it, and, right. I, and that's the problem about it. And uh, and what can you do? You just didn't uh, you didn't caught as a victim, and uh, you know I probably uh, more of my novels than if, if I had money for the amount of novels that were distributed, I'd be a multimillionaire right now. And uh, there's many celebrities. So, uh, out there that have uh, actually included my uh, lines in their in their books and um, movies. Jay Z's one of them. So is uh, Doggy Dog, the rapper. Yeah, they uh, they used the line from my novel, uh, written and stupid, called "Killed It." Uh, um, there's many examples of that. Uh, I actually outline it in curses too. I uh, chronologue it, but I didn't have enough time to chronologue how many times it happened. Um, but the largest Osteo event in Las Vegas was it February 7th, 8th, and 9th of 2013. 
I mean, when you see someone on a billboard across from MGM that you knew in Massachusetts, I mean, that's pretty pretty obvious, I would say. I just, uh, like I said, I mm-hmm. contacted many reporters, the New York Times, the LA Times, um, individual reporters, just then get them to uh, look into it. But like I said, the people in Maine, they had a lot of power, and uh, they're kind of keeping me in uh, in prison right now, whether, whether it be an informational uh, prison, like on the Internet, you know, in a... Actually, when I looked it up, actually, these false websites would just appear on my computer, and they were obviously about my books and certain things that I've written. And, um, and there's really nothing you can do about it. You're a you're a victim to the government. And actually, I went to the police and asked for their help, but um, they've actually been pretty oppressive to me about this whole thing. So I don't know. I guess uh, I guess. Um, Standing up for your American rights is uh, something that uh, American rights are a victim as well in this situation. So, written the stupid, of course, uh, hits close to home because of your hostage scenario. Uh, 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 no, actually, that didn't. I just wrote that as uh, as like a joke book. Really? Okay. Yeah. Um, Curses too did, but it was a fictional story, and like I said, the last section was was more written about my hostage. Now I like the way you put it that way. I was actually that's exactly what was happening. There was they were firing gunshots outside my house. Uh, my neighbor he didn't want me to be a writer, but for some reason because of the strict Baptist views, he has he had ends with the police department and the border patrol, and you know. Um, that didn't change, and, and when I moved to Ventura and I decided to publish my novels, that's when the false website started showing, showing up. I actually bought, what was it, I spent over uh, what $15,000 on commercials for my books, and I didn't sell any. You know, and I actually did that to cover for the people that were stealing my lines and everything on, on television and the radio. And I still, you know, no matter what I do, I can't get a fair shake from these people. And, uh, you know, that is a problem, especially when this is America. And, you know, uh, we all have constitutional rights that are being denied. And, you know, I'm kind of sick of it. There's really nothing else I can do. Uh, I actually put all this, I put evidence of all this on my Facebook page. Um, then I have uh, I have a couple video video interviews that I did that I, I put on there. I actually put a couple copies of these websites and everything, which are basically just pictures that are strung together that tell some stupid code. And uh, and they actually were feeding me information about 9-11 uh, to and a code written in the movies that I had to write a book about and I can't get it published. But uh, that's pretty much the whole story. What's your I mean, Facebook? Than, What's your Facebook you, for everyone's information? What's my Facebook? Right. Uh, well, you just just look up my name. Okay. To be able to find that. Jamie Allen Toomey. That's who we're talking with. Uh, we've been talking about his book, Paging Dr. Kevorkian, and some other uh, books that he's written. Obviously, Jamie uh, feels like he's under the gun for the way, I guess, he is portraying certain aspects of America or, or certain aspects of society. Sounds about right, except um, I don't believe that the people that are doing this to me actually believe in American rights. Mm-hmm. Right. So how... Run to the gun, you're talking about the satellite gun, because, because we're actually all being watched. 
And I think that's what was happening. They were watching me and jumping on my computer and passing out my um, my novels. And any objections that they had were probably uh, based towards me, rather, because they still distributed them. Uh, I mean, you know, any uh, objection, like you said earlier, about writing about murder and stuff like that, as long as it's fiction, I don't think that's a problem with it. And, you know, if you have a talent, you know, you should be able to make money for that talent, especially if you try harder than everyone else mm-hmm. to uh, to do that. And, you know, that's something I've been denied, and, you know, I, I want my constitutional rights. And these people, you know, as far as even the president, for example, have been denying my constitutional rights. And, you know, uh, and, I, and I really, really am sick of this. Maybe, you know... Some people are allowed to go and make money and do whatever they want, while other people are, you know, put in some kind of informational prison and held to a different standard. And I think uh, I think that's where I'm at right now. Um, so where do we get your books, Jamie? Excuse me? Where do we get your books? How can we get your books? Well, uh, Ex Libris. Uh, uh, so let me clean them up on Amazon. Also, uh, I have Div- uh, Divine Inspiration, the tag-along, is published uh, through Durant's Publishing. But I've been plagiarized back since 2008. They've been doing this for a long time. They even told me I couldn't publish my novels at all. And then basically I, I got fed up and I told them I was going to do my own thing no matter what they said. And there was a few individuals involved, uh, which I actually... And then, like I said, I mentioned my neighbor. He was only one of them. And, you know, they actually, there's this woman named Marilyn with Sinclair uh, from, uh, what was it, Brooks. Well, actually, we actually had conversations about my novels being distributed, and she read my novels before she even met me. And uh, that's around the Stephen King area. Uh, Brooks, Maine is near, uh, he's from Bangor, which is probably an hour or so. She even said she knew him, actually. And uh, she was going to get my career pushed in the right direction. But, you know, we talked openly about it. I mean, people that I didn't even pass my novels out to, there's one guy named Curtis who actually uh, said when he read a part of my novel, he said he read it, and I used another, the same section over again. And he said when he read it, uh, he read one section, then read another section with the same, uh, the same wording. And he said, didn't I just read that? And it was like, he said, wow, that was, that was crazy. It was like deja vu. And, that, you know, that is the intense that I had, but, you know, I never gave him a copy of my novel. <laughs> mm. And there were many people like that. Um, like my, said, uh, my neighbors had many conversations. I never gave him a copy of my novel. They were studying, uh, were studying lines that I wrote in my novel and trying to get me to, you know, write something different. They, mm-hmm. they all said they could get my uh, career pushed in the right direction. It's just, it's just um, I don't know what kind of ends they had. I think it was more through the, the Border Patrol and having big families like that up there. Um, like the, um, where I live, the section of Maine, I think once you at Bangor, there's sections of road that are 50, there's 50 miles without an exit. So I actually talked to this person named Steve Berry once who, um, who said it was like they lived a few hundred years in the past. And he lived a hundred years in the past himself. So that shows you the kind of people that lived up there. They were kind of... Uh, very medieval in their thinking and uh you know in the civilized society like like we should have today you know that just doesn't factor in so there's a bad environment actually yeah uh so as far as my hostage situation goes yeah they would do will find gunshots all around i had sirens going by my house police fire ambulance um i was threatened by my neighbors a few other things uh 
Trust me, I don't know how this all started, but uh, they have a, a few staunch beliefs up there, I guess you would say. But um, that man, Steve Berry, I mentioned, he actually wanted me to do help him uh, do a report on the small family farm. And then uh, I saw him in Bangor, and he actually got a camera crew to come out. And he did, um, this was in 2009, I believe, he was doing how the small family farm was being taken over by big business, and he wanted... Uh, and uh, he did a show which highlighted, you know, the beauty of the small family farm. They had clips and stuff right. like that of of uh, of that. And um, yeah, I saw it on uh, I forgot I forget what channel it was, but it was a news report. It actually, had a camera crew to come out come out and uh, do it. So, you know, the stuff that I'm talking about, like Laura Destacio, the Conan O'Brien incident, Jay Leno incident, uh, and Steve Berry, who had a camera crew to come out, this all can be checked on. And I hope somebody will actually do that eventually. And uh, we can start sticking up for rights and freedom of speech. Well, Jamie, we appreciate you being with us on Ex Libris on Air. Thank you so much for explaining not only uh, what your books are about, but your uh, firsthand, I guess, you know, just uh, your firsthand conflict over just freedom of speech, folks. Thank you. All right. Thank you. Ex Libris returns after these short messages. Hi everybody, this is Pete Six of Beatles and Beyond. Why don't we all come together and hear some of the tracks off the latest Beatles release on this radio station. Why don't you look up the schedules on this radio station and join me and Beatles listeners everywhere to hear the latest releases from the Beatles on Beatles and Beyond with Pete Dix. Connect with Juliana and connect with what lies beneath. Friday afternoons at 4, 3 central on toginet.com. Juliana is a marriage, family, and child therapist who wants people to connect. Connect with what lies beneath, those truths and answers. And through her counseling practice, she has helped others find their personal power and fulfill their dreams. And she wants to do the same for you. Here on Connect with Juliana. Through intimate discussions, intriguing subject matters, and the expertise of her guests. For more on the show and Juliana, check out her webpage. Connect with Juliana in media.com. Juliana will cover it all. Nothing is off limits. She wants to know what matters to you. Make the connection. Tune in to Toginet to connect with Juliana to find out the facts that could be hidden beneath the surface. Connect with Juliana on Toginet to make a quality connection in your life. Friday afternoons at 4, 3 central on toginet.com. Back to Ex Libris with your host, Steve Jorgensen. Greetings for Steve Jorgensen and for Ex Libris On Air. This is J. Douglas Barker. The title of the novel is Death and the Lottery Family. 
and our author, James Dennis Beeson. Dr. Beeson, welcome to the program. Thank you, sir. I address you as doctor because you do have a background as a physician as well as an author. Uh, indeed, I do. And you've written two or three other books and have those on your credit list. Well, we have number five in the works. Amazing. Tell me about this story, Death and the Lottery Family. At first, when I saw the cover, I assumed it might be a true story, but you tell me it's actually a fiction. No, sir. I was uh, stimulated because my son has a lady friend who did indeed win the lottery. Uh, her family and this fictional family have nothing in common. Uh, it, it, uh, it's all uh, made out of my mind, and uh, not that I'm out of my mind, mind you, but it came out of my mind. You have 308 pages. Tell me the basic, the basic genesis of the story. How does it come together? It's well known that people that win the lottery, uh, what, 60% of them are impoverished at the end of five years. And I know that there are people that uh, are poor, that know what to do and take care of themselves if a windfall comes their way. And I wanted to write something of an uplifting nature that had a good story. It has villains and it has saints. And it was a good background to take a dysfunctional family into at least partial functionality. How would you describe your your audience? Who's the who's the individual that's going to read this and really enjoy it? I, I write my books to where I think they are entertaining and interesting. I do not purport to write the great American novel or anything that has universal appeal. I think I write in a legible way and an understandable way, and I hope it's entertaining. Um, my friends, of course, they tell you the same thing. Oh, that was great. So... I've never run out of my appreciation of attaboys. Well, you can send a few of them my way if you have some extra friends. I'll certainly uh, <laughs> certainly subscribe I'll to that them. myself, absolutely. You've written two or three other novels. Are, are the other pieces you've written, are they also novels? Yes, sir. That's, they're all, all, all five are novels. I'm working on number six, as a matter of fact. And the process of writing your book, you mentioned that this is a vocation for you now. Do you keep... A journal? Do you flesh out ideas by putting down a, a general outline? How do you actually go about writing a book? Well, I do some of my best cerebrating in the middle of the night when I wake up. I need about two hours less sleep than my wife, so I sometimes have periods of what some people would term insomnia. It's a creative thought time for me. Mm. And I wake up in the morning, and usually I jot that down. It seems so brilliant in the middle of the night, and sometimes it's... Uh, mediocre the light of day but uh, I, I let my mind wander which it is capable of doing I've been blessed with a, a double entendre bent in other words you say something uh, it calls to mind a number of other things it's uh, just the way my <laughs> brain is structured I so think I, I have no trouble perpetuating I think we have a similar brain other than the fact that I'm not as productive as you are uh, <laughs> I doubt that. I, you sound pretty productive. Now, did you have any early childhood experiences, if I may enter that arena, that motivated or inspired you towards the idea of being an author, writing books? Oh, I've always written poetry here and there and little novelettes, and uh, I wrote a small uh, autobiography of uh, my first 20 years of life and passed it on to my children. I think they'll enjoy it after I'm dead because I didn't hear much back from them, although we're on good terms with all of them. I've, I've, I've had the same same experience in music, but go ahead. I didn't mean to interrupt. <laughs> well, I, I did have an inauspicious beginning. My father was a farmer, 
and he didn't own the farm. He lost uh, he lost the farm he was buying in the Depression, and then he unceremoniously died on me when in 1937. Mm. Uh, so uh, when I was uh, ten, and so my mother moved to the big city of Richmond, Indiana, and made a home for me till I was seventeen. I graduated from uh, high school, skipped on the twelfth grade, which was easy to do back then. It wasn't any great sign of brilliance. Got in the Navy, got a college training program. I got my pre-med in under two years, went to medical school, was the youngest member of the class, well, somebody had to be. Graduated when I was 22, which is uh, uncommon now, wasn't a total rarity back then. Been chronically healthy all my life. That's the, that's uh, certainly the, the biggest uh, element of any success that I've had. I've stayed healthy, both physically and mentally, I think. And I ended up taking my residency in Jacksonville, Florida, which uh, the time ended, I didn't have enough money to leave town, so I set up practice here and uh, hmm. been there ever since. And if I may just interject for our listeners, you mentioned, in case they missed it, that you attended school back in the 30s? <clears throat> well, uh, grade school. I was in the top nine of my first grade class. Amazing. There were nine members in the class. So you're over you are over retirement age. You should be just taking it easy in Jacksonville. <laughs> yes, sir. I, I retired from medicine 18 years ago. Incredible. I and had a sick wife to look after, but uh, it was time to retire also. In looking back, did you have any advice related to life or writing that you received that was really powerful and stuck in your mind? Well, uh, I did I did have a uh, an English teacher, and she put out the process that if we would memorize poetry and recite it for her during class, you'd get extra credit. And you could do enough of this that you could get an A and flunk every test she gave. I didn't believe her. But being a mild rebel, I embraced that, so I memorized poetry and poetry and poetry and purposely flunked her tests, and lo and behold, she gave me an A. Amazing. I was chuckling to myself how I'd outwitted her until I got into college and realized she'd outwitted me. She'd gotten me interested in poetry and English and the written word. Anyway, it was a a happy occasion. I had the epiphany and dawned on me. We have a lot of uh, educators that do listen to our programs, and many who are also authors. So that's a very interesting story, interesting tale that you've just shared with us. What's the first novel you remember reading as a child? The uh, Boy Allies on the Firing Line. This was a series of books about World War One. The Boy Allies at Verdun, the Boy Allies at Liège, Boy Allies and the Cossacks. Those were the first books I ever read. They were thrilling. James, are there any authors or novelists that you've read in the past that you admire or try to emulate in your writing? I don't really have a role model for that. I, I just... Uh, I, I, I'd love to say some big words, but uh, I really don't have a role model there. <laughs> That's okay. It's all right to, to march to your own drum and, and have your own <laughs> game plan in place. That's uh, certainly an, an achievable goal. Now, how long did it take to put this novel together, 308 pages? I think about six six to nine months. And that's from start to publication? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, yes, sir. Well, congratulations on that. Introducing this book to someone, what would you say about the storyline that would get their attention and get them interested in reading the book? Well, I think the permutations and combinations of what a person can do that inherits $12 million all in one swell hoop uh, uh, is a, a launching ground for interesting occurrences. 
And is there anything about this book that sets it apart from others in the marketplace as a published and an author who's already achieved some success? How do your books stand out? I don't know. I've not, I haven't come across any novels of uh, lottery winners. Uh, I'm sure there must be some, but this isn't all gloom and doom. Uh, it, uh, it covers both sides of the canal. Are there underlying messages that you want the reader to take away from reading your book? <clears throat> well, yes, that uh, contrary to popular belief, people can change, period. And is there a positive message besides the fact that these main characters, when $12 million. Well, the single character wins $12 million. What she does for and to her family, basic theme of it. And, of course, side issues that uh, flesh it out. The, uh, her, uh, her attorney comes to an untimely end, and, of course, that's part of the mystery. It, it, it all extends from the fact that she's a multimillionaire, and she has lots of new friends and new relatives that have always liked her old boyfriends come around and they sure have missed her now i'm thinking that this might make a great movie is there a particular scene in here that you think sets the tone for this book well i don't know my favorite chapter is when some of her relatives go to the welfare office to de-enlist themselves and the confusion that generates i think that's my favorite chapter at least from a humor standpoint that's a good one. Sounds like a great comedy or a great comedic opportunity. <laughs> Is there anything about this book that was challenging in putting it together? Um, well, just, uh, no, sir, I, I can't think of any. I, I didn't have writer's block on this one. It, it seemed uh, it seemed to flow, and uh, one thing led to another, and uh, I do identify with my characters. I don't, I don't lose my head over it, but I, I, I do put myself in each of their places, at least in my own mind, and I think I'm successful, as successful as I need to be. This looks like an entertaining and enjoyable read. 308 pages, Death and the Lottery Family. I'm reading some of the excerpts in here, and the character is uh, experiencing lobster for the first time and some other <laughs> other issues. I think that's a, that's a, a very uh, identifiable scene that I think a lot of people can relate to. Well, now I talk about how things are tied in. I grew up in the country, and I was 17 before I realized that most people used meat as a, a perennial for their their meal base. And I've potatoes in my family, so we're sometimes late to the table. I can relate to the potatoes. My mother was from <laughs> Ireland, so we had potatoes nearly every meal. We did, too. Now, I understand you are an athlete also, besides <laughs> living in Florida and doing golf and whatever else they do down there. What other <laughs> activities and awards have you won? Well, now, I won the table tennis championship in the 11th grade in high school, and I was accorded a plastic trophy, which has lasted uh, to this very day. Great plastic. eight inches high, and looks very much like a plastic trophy. <laughs> you know, they aren't that, making that plastic. That's my main claim to fame. They aren't making plastic like they used to. I mean, I think the plastic trophies of, of, of our contemporary society probably melt and disappear after a few weeks. I used to play golf, but I pretty much was comic relief there, and so I disengaged from that, showing mercy on my former partners. Great idea. Great idea. You've done so well as a, as a writer. I, in fact, I'm going to suggest that people do a search under James Dennis Beeson to get a copy of anything else you have written or are planning to write. Well, I'd be happy with that. I, 
if I, I know I'm making people happy, that makes me happy. Of course, I'm happy to begin with, so it uh, carries it's over a level playing field. Love love it when authors share their their passion. So thank you again. Thank you. Death in the Lottery family, thank you so much, James Dennis Beeson, for joining us today. Where can I get a copy of your book? I believe Amazon has it, has all the books for that matter, I believe. And I guess Barnes & Noble has it somewhere, and certainly Ex Libris, who's been my very kind publishers. You can get it, get it through them. It's also uh, on uh, the e, e, what do you call it, the e-whatever? E- e-book, yes. Yeah, it's available that way as well as hard copy. All right. It comes in two delicious flavors, uh, hard copy and soft copy. Well, thank you, James, for joining me today. Well, thank you for interviewing me. For Ex Libris On Air, this is J. Douglas Barker. Ex Libris returns after these short messages. Join us for Self-Aid Success Stories with Helen Wu, Wednesday nights at 10, 9 central on toginet.com. Helen Wu was born and raised in San Francisco's Chinatown, and after a very difficult upbringing, fighting depression, abuse, and addictions, she finally finds herself genuinely happy inside and out. Helen believes in taking our positive thinking and doing something positive to achieve a positive outcome. She's here to make a positive difference in your life, to be your game changer, your aha moment mentor. She's ready to help both men and women get into a better place. Helen Wu is also the author of Self-Aid Success Stories, 25 Success Stories from Successful Entrepreneurs. Inspired by Ellen DeGeneres, Helen wants the world to know that just because we find ourselves in a difficult situation doesn't mean we have to stay there. We can aid ourselves to a better life. So join us for Self-Aid Success Stories with Helen Wu. Wednesday nights at 10, 9 central on toginet.com. Welcome back to Ex Libris with your host, Steve Jorgensen. Greetings for Steve Jorgensen and for Ex Libris On Air. This is J. Douglas Barker. Today I visit with Peter Sullivan, who has authored a book titled Punch Drunk on CO2, Dizzy from Spin. Uh, he is joining us from Australia. Welcome, Peter. Hi, Jay. 530 pages. This is a very contemporary and important topic that you have addressed. What motivated you to get involved in writing this book? Well, Jay, um, uh, this goes back to 2009, leading up to the Copenhagen Climate Conference. Uh, There were a lot of politicians um, making uh, statements about... um, climate change and global warming and carbon dioxide, etc. And uh, I just felt that some of the statements that I'm making were simply just wrong. And um, I, I just thought this is just not right to, to be making uh, um, public statements that, are, that sounded more like propaganda rather than, than science. And so I thought I should do some research into it because... Like everyone else, I probably wasn't that familiar with the topic. And um, it was, uh, I think, Al Gore's movie, really, that uh, got me interested in this topic. Um, and that was an inconvenient truth. And uh, But basically, you know, whilst an inconvenient truth uh, was good publicity about this topic and raised its profile, 
Um, I thought I should do some research and delve into this issue, and that's what I did. And uh, as a consequence of that research, I thought, well, you know, I should write a book about this. And my presumption is from your research in 530 pages that you have come up with some alternative views. Well, you know, um, what I I found is, uh, I mean, it's a very um, complicated uh, subject matter. And, uh, but what I did find uh, was that, you know, the, what we are told is gold standard climate science, uh, that, that's not really the case. Uh, you know, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, which is the UN organization responsible for supposedly assessing all the climate science, they didn't actually do that. They just looked at the science relating to anthropogenic global warming man-made global warming, they didn't consider or they didn't give much attention to the overwhelming amount of science relating to natural climate variability. And I just thought it's outrageous for them to say they um, assess all the available climate science when uh, yet they didn't do that. And we know they didn't do that because a group of international scientists came out with a report in 2009 titled Climate Change Reconsidered, in which they outlined thousands and thousands of peer-reviewed studies that the IPCC editors knew about, but they just conveniently ignored that science because it was in conflict with their hypothesis mm-hmm. on global warming. We're finding that in the United States, where I'm calling from at this moment, we are going through one of the coldest winters on record. This winter in the United States is in conflict with global warming ideas. So in their wisdom, those proponents of global warming have changed it to climate change to better fit their model. That's, that's right. And, you know, um, I hope you don't mind my referring to your president's um, statement uh, in his State of the Union address uh, when he said that, you know, climate change is a fact you know, blah, blah, blah. Well, I mean, comments like that are just nonsense. I mean, you know, saying climate change is a fact, it's like saying water is wet. I mean, it's a meaningless statement. The thing about it all is that whether he realizes it or not, what he means by climate change is catastrophic man-made global warming. And of course, we've gone beyond whether there's warming. We're talking about why has there been a pause in warming for the last 17 years? But it it appears no one has told your president about this, you know, and this is what everyone's talking about. Why has there been a pause in in the global warming? Uh, I mean, bear in mind, we've had record carbon dioxide emissions in that 17-year period, uh, even uh, way, way above expectations of the IPCC. And no one can come up with an answer. Why, despite all this carbon dioxide, why has there been no warming in the last 17 years? But for some reason, your president doesn't seem to know this. He seems to be, I don't know, behind the times on this issue. And that's why I was rather disappointed when he spoke about climate. Now, you, now, you're, start, now you're starting to meddle. <laughs> However, I, I happen I, ha- I happen to agree with you, so I'm, I better uh, not comment much. Yeah, there's there's a lot of uh, pontificating from pulpits, uh, bully pulpits around the the universe about global warming when 
in my pr- presumption and my estimation, it's uh, way overworked, and, and as you say, is a hypothesis that they're trying to make everything fit into. This is a difficult subject, and and I'm so happy that someone has taken time to research it and give some alternative views. There's not enough of that being espoused right now. Well, um, that's all I have tried to, to do. And, um, you know, if you go back and look at the history of this um, whole issue of global warming, you know, there is no doubt that uh, what is behind all this is um, this idea, you know, that politicians and, and environmental advocates, activists, striving for international controls on fossil fuel energy use. I mean, that's the whole point of all these climate conferences. They want to get this agreement, you know, they have the Kyoto Protocol, then they thought they'd have the Copenhagen Accord, all that fell into disarray. And uh, for, ever since then, they've been trying to get one of these deals uh, done, you see. And uh, again, I'm a bit disappointed that the United States president has fallen for all this. And, you know, you look at what Europe is doing right now. They're withdrawing from all these green policies. You look at Germany and so forth, the UK. And the United States is seems to be heading to where Spain was 10 or 15 years ago. Spain really went overboard on wind energy and, and other alternative sources, didn't it? Well, yes, you know, they, they really went uh, into um, the green philosophy. And, uh, you know, as a consequence, the, um, it caused so much trouble to the economy. Uh, it created so much unemployment. And, uh, you know, the, the model that Spain adopted... This was the model that uh, President Obama was spruiking. And I understand that uh, as, uh, the sta- there was a, a moment when uh, Spain told President Obama, you know, don't talk up the Spanish model because you'll just destroy your economy if you follow the Spanish model because it's been disastrous for mm. Spain. But this is something that, you know, the administration has to be very careful because, as uh, I said, Europe, it seems to be withdrawing now from all these green policies. And, uh, and you know, President Obama seems determined to keep this thing alive. I mean, he, he actually seems to want a replacement for the Kyoto Protocol, the mm-hmm. way he's talking. Right. And I would imagine that would be a concern to many people because, you know, when you start having the, the United States president talking like this, you know, it's most likely the world will end up with such a deal, with such a, a, an agreement, um, because this thing was just about to die a sick death, uh, and then he resurrects it, you know, by saying, no, no, we're going, to, we're going to go through this, we're going to have an agreement, I think by 2015 or 2016, you know, and I'm thinking, well, you know, um, I mean, I don't know who advises him, but uh, clearly this, they're out of... Uh, think with uh, what's happening in the EU and in Britain, you know, which is a bit sad because, you know, it's as though someone wants to put down the American economy and it's like, you know, someone wants to introduce um, socialism into the American way. I mean, the secret to success is cheap energy, but for some reason, the White House wants to prevent that for, for whatever reason. I mean, President Obama himself commented that he'd like to see the price of a gallon of fuel, uh, uh, you know, $7 or whatever crazy figure it was. You know, why would a president be talking like that? You know, and, you know, governments around the world should understand 
they're there to make life easier for their citizens, you know, to create an environment where people can succeed and, you know, but for some reason, this administration seems to be doing the opposite. It's like they're determined to place control over people's lives by controlling energy use. That seems to happen with anybody that gets into political uh, position of leadership. Are, are you having those or similar issues in Australia? Well, fortunately, we had an election last year, and the Conservatives got in. And they are determined to get rid of the Australian carbon tax, because, you know, Australia was the first country to introduce a national carbon tax. Wow. And it was the biggest carbon tax uh, in the world. And But this uh, conservative uh, side of politics came into, it was swept into power because the Australian people obviously were sick and tired of this nonsense. The carbon tax was creating serious uh, problems for our economy. And uh, Mr. Tony Abbott, who is our Prime Minister, he said before the election, I am going to get rid of the carbon tax. And it's, it's as though his, his way of thinking is more in line with our former Conservative Prime Minister, John Howard, and very much in line with uh, the ideas of Margaret Thatcher, who... Um, despite everyone telling her she was wrong, she actually turned out to be right for most of her reign mm-hmm. <laughs> as Prime Minister of the UK. But Tony Abbott, he's all about creating uh, job opportunities, cutting government expenditure, cutting the debt. Uh, you know, he's a very um, forward-thinking person. He's interested in the Australian people, and he's not doing all this uh, global warming nonsense. You know, he... he, he He's not spending a dollar on it. Um, he, he just wants to get rid of all this, 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 this carbon tax and everything that goes with it. And uh, yeah, this is the first country to do to do this. I hope it spills over into the United uh, into the United States. That would be uh, helpful if that thinking and that uh, progressive approach to letting people live their lives would uh, would expand to other countries. This is a very well-researched book. Uh, Peter, how long did it take you to put this book together? Well, I actually, um, it probably took about uh, a year because, you know, uh, by profession I'm an auditor. And, uh, you know, my clients would come first. So I was actually writing this book at 11 o'clock at night, (laughs) (laughs) and up to like 2 o'clock in the morning, that sort of thing, and and, and the odd hour or two that I'd get on the weekend. Uh, So, you know, I I didn't have an opportunity to to just sit down like a normal author and uh, just write it in more or less one go after I'd done my research, uh, which was unfortunate because... uh, when you're an auditor, uh, you know, you have to um, give all your, um, well, you just have to uh, attend to your clients and, and to the work you're doing. That's the first priority. And uh, so, yeah, it, because of that, it took about a year to write. But I'd already done all the research, if you know what I mean. Right. Uh, and, so it was just, and as an auditor, right. you're an individual that focuses on detail. So there is a lot of important detail in this book and in this work. Do you think this is going to appeal to a large audience, or is it something that is more scholastic in its approach and uh, might be used in in a teaching environment, perhaps? Well, um, 
it's difficult to say, but I was actually aiming it at uh, ordinary people who might be interested in this topic. And uh, so I, I tried to make it very user-friendly. I tried to divide it into uh, topics, you know, chapters for a separate topic, you know, like you know, one chapter on carbon dioxide, one on the climate models, et cetera, et cetera. And, and present information in a user-friendly manner that they can get to grips with this topic. Because I, my concern is that too many people don't know about this topic, yet they don't seem to understand it affects every single one of us. Because all this green nonsense and, and global warming uh, costs, it comes from the taxpayer's wallet. And until citizens of the world understand this, um, then, you know, they'll just uh, walk blindly and think, yeah, it's great, you know, we'll spend trillions of dollars on this issue. Without understanding it, they're, they're in And uh, what does alarm me is the amount of money, the obscene amounts of money that have been spent fighting global warming, and there's nothing to show for it. It's right. just madness. It is uh, eerie. I, I just can't understand how your United States last year spent two billion dollars, twenty-nine billion dollars in that region. Uh, it's just stunning. You know, in two thousand and eight, it was spending I think nine billion, seven, seven or nine billion. Uh, it's seven shot up, mind-boggling figure. You know, they've been at it since eighty-eight. You know, when the IPCC was created. And to this day, they still haven't even been able to cite one peer-reviewed study that demonstrates that carbon dioxide uh, emitted by is causing catastrophic global warming and is the key driver of climate change. It's crazy, you know? Absolutely. Um, In looking at the uh, research that you've done, I'm sure finding the time to put this together was a very challenging part about putting the book together. Was there anything that was fun or rewarding about it? Well, for years, actually, um, the rewarding part was discovering all this information because, uh, as I said before, I wasn't aware of it. I, I really, you know, like most people, I, I, I had never bothered to educate myself about it. You know, you just listened to what the politicians said, to what Al Gore said. You believed what you read in the papers and what you saw on documentaries. Um, but I smelled a rat because of the comments coming out, you know, which were clearly wrong, you know, and I thought this, you know, this is just nonsense. Uh, and I guess uh, because I've got an inquiring mind, I thought, look, uh, I should find some time to do some research on this topic and uh, and just see what I come up with. And uh, it didn't take so long before, you know, you, you didn't have to dig very deep under the surface to start finding out that uh, there's a lot wrong with this whole issue. What, con what concerned me was that so much of the information being put out in the public domain was really just misleading and often just plain wrong, you know? Yes. Blatant lies. And a lot of it is emotion-driven, too. A lot of the uh, information that's in the marketplace and that people listen to and respond to is emotionally driven, not logically. And I appreciate your taking time as a logical thinker to do the research and give us the information we need to make a, a quantitative decision. The title of this book is Punch Drunk on CO2, Dizzy from the Spin, and our author is Peter Sullivan. Peter, where can we get copies of your book? Well, it's available... Uh, at Amazon and uh, Barnes and Noble, uh, Ex Libris, and it's in um, hard copy, soft cover, 
so hardcover, softcover, and ebook versions. You know, so for anyone who likes to use their iPad or their smartphones or their laptops, an e-book is the cheapest way to 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 get it. But uh, I understand today people still like to read hard copy. Any possibility that you may consider writing a, a follow-up book to this one? Well, I've uh, thought about that. The problem with this, if I if I were to write another book, um, I just wonder whether the whole thing would be exposed before I could even get the book out. But I thought uh, the information in this current book was probably relevant because, you know, it really addresses what they call the gold standard in climate science. But the whole point is it's irrelevant because they told us that this 2007 fourth assessment report was the gold standard report, the settled science, probably we call that expression. Right. Incontrovertible. If you go to various science academies, they claim this is incontrovertible. So if the 2007 report was the settled science and incontrovertible, I can't understand why they're bothering with the fifth assessment report. But, you know, that report... It was all about rising temperature trends based on rising, various rising carbon dioxide emission scenarios. And what has happened is Mother Nature has rendered that report obsolete because Mother Nature has revealed to us a temperature pause, a pause in global warming. Well, that was never, ever even considered in the IPCC's 2007 report. It was all about rising temperatures. By now, according to the <laughs> the IPCC's 2007 report, we, we should be having fine band temperatures. But nothing has happened because nature is playing its usual climate tricks. You know, nobody knows. There's not one scientist around the world. It doesn't matter who they are. They don't know what the future holds with climate. Absolutely. And that's the problem. Absolutely. And how anyone can say the science is settled, this is just propaganda. And you know, Jay, I, I really like this. You can always tell the difference between science and propaganda. You know, when scientists have a theory, they diligently search for the data. They, they welcome others looking at their work and providing constructive criticism and advice because they, they need to refine the theory or, or perhaps even find out that it's just a load of rubbish. But when you look at what propagandists do, and usually you find... Um, politics is involved. They cherry-pick the data, then they uh, just ignore all the other data, they then hold up their theory as being incontrovertible, and God help anyone who challenges it. You know, even if a scientist comes up with credible scientific evidence to say the theory has a problem or is wrong, these people are accused of being in the pair of big oil companies or, you know, you know the usual uh, negative arguments. Yes. Uh, you know, they're, they're, they're deniers, they're, they're uh, skeptics. This is what happens. And sadly, this is what the IPCC and all these global warming alarmists around the world are accused of engaging in propaganda rather than the science because what they're doing is certainly not in accordance with the scientific method. They brought science into disrepute. Science is in a terrible state right now. Peter, thank you for writing this book and for sharing the information you have uncovered in your research. The title again is Punch Drunk on CO2, Dizzy from Spin. Thank you, sir, for joining us today. Thank you, Joe. For Ex Libris On Air, this is Jay Douglas Barker. Join Steve Jorgensen next week at the same time as he explores the passion and the inspiration behind the works of today's authors. Right here 
on Ex Libris On Air.